Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? How many of you, with a show of hands, have been around longleaf pines before? If you have, you're probably like me, and most of it has been spent on the coastal plain where they grow in these sort of sandy wire grass, saw palmetto dominated understories, but these wonderful tall, straight bean pole, telephone pole, whatever you want to call it, stands. Just stunning imagery that really, to me, defines the coastal plain forests. Well, today we are talking to someone that studies mountain longleaf. I'll leave the debates on taxonomy to someone else or another episode, perhaps, but uh, mountain longleaf is a really unique subset or community of longleaf pine that makes its way up into sort of montane areas of Alabama and Georgia. It is also some of the rarest longleaf ecosystems you're going to find in North America. And trying to figure out how to restore that is a really important question because a lot of great species occur in mountain longleaf systems. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Matt Weend. As you're going to hear, he is a very busy person asking a lot of different questions, but through collaboration and the effort of many different grad students and stakeholders, they're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work when it comes to restoring ecosystems like the mountain longleaf forests. I don't want to steal any of his thunder, but conversations like this can't happen without support. And one great way to support Indefensive Plants is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. There's kickbacks for a little financial contribution each month, but it goes many, many miles in helping keep the show up and running. And I thank everyone that's supported it so far. But that is entirely enough out of me. Let's get into it because this is fascinating. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Matt Weend. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Matt Weehan, welcome to the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you about our subject today, but for those that aren't aware of your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. Um, thanks. I'm happy to be here. So I'm an associate professor of biology at Kennesaw State University, and uh, I guess I describe as what I do as uh, forest ecology in a general way in, in the last uh, four or five years. I've had more and more of an emphasis on uh, restoration ecology. Excellent. Very important realm to be working in, especially as we move forward into this uncertain future. But what brought you to this? I mean, were you always kind of just a nature kid growing up or did you kind of discover it as you were going into college or something like that? Yeah, um, I definitely had like a convoluted uh, way of getting to where I am. Good. So uh, <laughs> I, I think I was really into the outdoors as a kid. Um I grew up in Connecticut and played outside all the time. But when I went to college, I ended up studying engineering. Hmm. And uh, it was the, the mid 90s, like heyday of the original tech boom. I got out of college and took a job in engineering and uh, I really was unsatisfied by it. Hmm. Uh, and so I, much to my parents' chagrin, I left that job and uh, got uh, work as a camp counselor where I was, I was working outside quite a bit. Right on. Uh, and the more I was outside, um, the more I was just kind of interested in my surroundings. Uh, and eventually I decided to go back to school. And, uh, originally I thought, well, I can apply my engineering skills to studying the environment. And I, I started out in a GIS lab, oh. um, but 
then I kept learning more about biology and plant biology really hooked me in. I think it was actually like the plant life cycle, like the uh, especially flowering plants, and, uh, double fertilization and all of that. And I remember meeting an ecologist who was um, uh, Brian McCarthy at Ohio University. And uh, I was really into the community ecology stuff. So I ended up working on a uh, looking at the plant communities in reclaimed areas around uh, surface mines or strip mines in oh, wow. Southeast Ohio, which was uh, totally new for me. You know, it was nothing like I had ever thought <laughs> I would do, but um, I, I enjoyed that. And then uh, later I went back to school and studied uh, ecosystem ecology mm. uh, in Northern hardwood forests, looking at like nutrient cycling and the roles of, of different plant species in uh, that forest system. And uh, I think I, I remember when I finished school, uh, that was at University of Kentucky. When I, when I finished school there, I had, I already kind of had the idea that I'd like to do something applied mm. with ecosystem ecology and um, wasn't sure what that was going to be. And it, it took me a while to, to kind of figure it out. But about five years ago, a colleague of mine introduced me to someone at the Georgia Department of Natural Resources and said, you should check out what, what they're doing with longleaf pine. I think you'd be into it. And so they basically like took me on a tour of these restoration sites. And uh, that's where I was bit by the restoration bug, I guess. Nice. Convoluted. But those are some of my favorite stories because it's so comforting to hear for a lot of people that there really is no like, this is step one, then step two, and then step three, you're successful and you're in happy career. You know, it doesn't work out that way. And sometimes it takes a while to figure it out. But, you know, it through a series of events, here you are. And I, it sounds like you're in a place where you're much happier and, and actually enjoying what you're doing every day. Yeah, definitely. And although I will say, like, um, for a while, I didn't really know what to do with those those skills I learned in college, but they've kind of come back around full circle. Like as anybody in ecology knows, like programming is like oh yeah, part and parcel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you're using R or SAS or those kind of things, um, so I definitely use some of those those programming skills I learned as an engineer, and even GIS I I use today. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, yeah, it, it really any skill set you pick up, it's not wasted time, right? Like at some point you can find yeah. an application. It might not be the most obvious, but you know, yeah, then again, here you are. And and it's really cool to see all of that kind of pointed towards this applied area of ecosystem environmental science, because really it's the application. Like we, we can learn all we want if we're not applying it. Oh boy. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I was much more satisfied once I found an avenue for taking like the, the theory of ecosystem ecology and, and community ecology ideas and, and saying, okay, well, what can we do with that to improve um, what we know about the environment? And one of one of the things I, I often say to my students is that, you know, unfortunately, when you learn about ecology, uh, especially plant ecology, you know, there's a lot of stories that are like bummers, right? Like, <laughs> right. I mean, how many times do you hear habitat destruction, right? Or climate change and, and anxiety about that. And restoration ecology, I think is great because it's, it's the story that's not a bummer, right? right? When it's successful. Yeah. Yeah. And in so many ways, it's the solution to a lot of problems. And obviously we've got light years ahead of us in terms of what we can learn and what we can apply and how we can better ourselves at wherever we are. But it really does 
come back to restoring plant communities, healthy functioning plant communities. They might not be what was historically there, but plants really do set the foundation for the rest of ecological science as we know it. Yeah, I, I'm definitely in that camp as well. I, I mean, I, you know, I think that was part of my draw to like the ecosystem ecology stuff is just um, specifically interactions between plant species and soils as kind of setting the stage for what makes an ecosystem work the way it does. Heck yeah, you're in great company right now, my friend. <laughs> but you mentioned longleaf. I am obsessed with longleaf. And like many others probably listening, my introduction to longleaf ecosystems was on the coastal plain where they grow like perfect telephone poles. I mean, with branches, of course, but uh, you know, you get used to seeing them in a certain context. But your work takes you into some really interesting backdrops for finding this species. Let's talk about longleaf and, and where you can find it, but specifically where you are working with it. Yeah, so um, the work that I'm doing is in systems that are being restored for what would be called mountain or montane longleaf pine communities. Ooh. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, of history in about longleaf pine forests, right? And I think most of that, the majority of that history is like the coastal plain kind of stuff. But the, the montane longleaf pine systems are quite a bit different. If you look at like the historical maps, the, the montane longleaf pine are sort of the very top of this weird arm of their distribution that comes up through West Georgia and Northeast Alabama. And it, it definitely was not like the majority of, of what historical longleaf was, but it's really interesting to me because it's occurring a, a right at the sort of intersection of like the Southern Appalachians and also the Piedmont. Mm. So you get uh, this interesting mix of plants that um, you don't have elsewhere, you know, especially in the in the understory communities. Um, so, you know, I think people who know Longleaf are, are familiar with like the coastal plain systems where you've got uh, understories dominated with wire grass, mm. right? But in, in these systems, uh, there's a there's a lot of differences. I mean, there's longleaf pine, but also uh, at least historically, a lot of um, oak species too, yeah. like blackjack oak or post oaks. And then in the understory, there's not really any wire grass. I instead, there's uh, grasses like blue stems. Uh, there's a lot of uh, vaccinium's, blueberries, and then and then you've got all the you know asters and and leg legumes that are in there too. So it's a really interesting mix um, from that perspective. Yeah. And if you familiarize yourself with one or the other, right, it's a really good lesson when you do change into these different sort of ecosystem areas where that range is is different from what your, your backdrop and what you're used to. You do realize that like communities are a convenient thing to define, but boy, the players can change quite a bit. And that's what you're getting at there is just how different it feels to be in a montane or mountain longleaf system versus like, again, that coastal plain. Yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, the differences are, um, in some part, I think probably driven by topography and soil types, you know, a lot, a lot less sandy soils, steeper topography, thinner, rockier soils. Yeah. yeah. And, and the other thing I'll say about it is that uh, it's, you know, every, if you know the longleaf pine story, you know that it was once a, a sprawling uh, series of ecosystems across the Southeast, right? Like from Virginia to Texas, but uh, it was largely removed or, or, destroyed, right? Habitat right. destruction or conversion. And because montane longleaf pine was one of the 
rarer ecotypes, I guess. Uh, it's it's like the rarest of the rare, in my opinion. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's like there's there's few examples of really uh, pristine mountain longleaf habitat. Um, probably the best examples are in Alabama. There's the um, Mountain Longleaf National Wildlife Refuge, which is kind of adjacent to the Talladega National Forest. Oh yeah. And uh, I think that they've got some stands of old growth mountain longleaf, Ooh. which I, I have never seen. I, you know, I've got to get out there, oh, but man. I think those are probably like the best examples that we have. Sure. Yeah. And when you start thinking of, like you explained, it's this weird arm of its normal distribution up into Alabama and Georgia, you start thinking of like edge of range dynamics, right? Like what's going on at that edge that makes these pines slightly different? I mean, maybe that's a genetic molecular question, but it's just really curious. And having been in a mountain longleaf, maybe not old growth, but they just grow different. Everything looks different. It's just, you're seeing what the difference of the physical backdrop of that ecosystem does to this tree and how wide it's, it's sort of physiological responses can be. Yeah. Um, so my understanding is that there's some debate about whether the a mountain longleaf is a separate variety of longleaf. Hmm. Uh, I'm not a tree geneticist, so I I don't want to weigh in any further (laughs) on that. Um, But I know that like the the restoration efforts that are going on um, to expand mountain longleaf habitat are uh, they're using, um, you know, local ecotypes uh, for all their uh, or local local genotypes, I should say, um, for their uh, plantings, you know. Good. I mean, Um, good practice regardless of what the debate yeah. sort of settles out to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's a cool forest type. It's really different from the other forest types that I've worked in before. Like, you know, my education was in central hardwoods and yeah. Northern hardwoods, but this is much more of an open canopy system. And the fact that it's like a fire driven system too, is really, um, quite different for me. Very so. cool. And so where do you start to enter into this equation? Because obviously there's a ton of different questions and approaches. It's a rare ecosystem. There's, there's, you know, you mentioned there's restoration involved. Like what, how did you start biting off your little chunk of this whole puzzle? Yeah. So, um, I I mentioned earlier, uh, I was introduced to some people at the Georgia department of natural resources. And, um, I, am really like a bit player. There, there are some people in Northwest Georgia and Northeastern Alabama that, in my opinion, are doing incredible work to restore these systems. And I'll just, you know, name drop people, uh, Brent Womack at the Department of Natural Resources, Katie Owens at the Nature Conservancy are people that uh, have been doing this for a long time where they, they're actively acquiring property, they're acquiring land, and then they're looking at ways that they can uh, convert that land to have more of a longleaf component, and there's there's um, a, a few different ways they can do that. But but my role was uh, after meeting these folks, um, there was some information, sort of more of the academic side, more of the research side, um, where they had some questions uh, that they wanted answered, <laughs> and some of those questions were about the history of the area in terms of like the historic forest composition. So. One of my my first grad student actually worked on a dendrochronology project, Ooh, cool. looking at uh, fire scars in stumps of old mountain longleaf, uh, because there, other than the the national um, the mountain longleaf national refuge, there really isn't any 
uh, old growth longleaf out there, um, and you wouldn't want to cut it down anyway. Yeah, right? But there are these uh, stumps that were logged back in like the 30s, 1940s, and they're they're just so full of resin that they have persisted. They mm. they just are very slow to decompose. And uh, people, you know, people actually collect them and sell them as firewood. They call them um, fat wood or, or hmm. uh, lighter wood because they're so full of resin. They're really flammable. Yeah. Um, but uh, we were interested in, well, can we can we look at these stumps and, uh, you know, clean them up, cut them up, sand them up and, and detect any fire scars in them? Nice. Um, and of course, we didn't make this up. You know, this is all just uh, aping other researchers that work in other longleaf systems, like people down in Florida have been doing this for, it's for science, quite a while. And you build on the shoulders of others. It's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and we were kind of curious about it because, um, the, the people that were, were planting longleaf and reintroducing prescribed fire, they were sort of, they had these questions about, well, what should our fire interval be? You know, how does our fire interval compare to historic intervals? Not that there has to be a match there, sure. but they were curious as to what the intervals were like. And we looked at a lot of stumps. My, my grad student, Chris Waters, who's now um, working on a PhD, uh, he, he looked at, did a lot of sanding and looked at a <laughs> lot of tree rings. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think our sample size could have been higher, but but the the short story is that the fire intervals were anywhere from like three to seven years, um, hmm. which is maybe what you you might expect for a system that's in the mountains as opposed to the coastal plain. Yeah, you know it's it's a, a wetter system probably than a lot of areas in the coastal plain. So historically, like um, there there may not have been as many uh, just lightning started fires. Uh, I'm leaving out the whole story of, of human started sure, fires, sure. of course. The the oldest stumps that we found scars in went back to the turn of the 1900s, but that was already sort of the beginning of the era of fire suppression. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of debate about uh, how effective that policy, you know, the Smokey <laughs> the Bear policy, was in areas like Northwest Georgia, where the pop human population was was not that dense. Right. Um, and the distance from the federal government was pretty high. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's not like there was a, a forest service ranger walking around yeah. looking for anybody starting fires. You know, I think if somebody had a, a, a hundred acres of, of forest and they wanted to burn it for wildlife purposes, they probably did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or if one got started, they're not prioritizing the, the choppers or whatever to get in there for it. Yeah, yeah. In the 1930s, 1940s, I, I, I totally believe that people were probably still burning for their own purposes. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was kind of our first area of inquiry was sort of looking at uh, what we could learn about fire history there. And uh, from there, we got we just got into it more and more. And uh, I was started working with some colleagues over at, at Auburn, um, looking at fire behavior uh, in in restoring these stands. So uh, I guess we should talk a little bit about uh, the, the restoration issues. Yeah. Um, there's, there is still like mature longleaf on the landscape. Right. Um, in Northwest Georgia, Northeastern Alabama. Um, but it's, it's often been encroached on by uh, a lot of more 
fire intolerant mesophyte, mm. mesophyte species. Um, your, you know, red maple is like the classic species, but it's, it's not the only one. I mean, there's, there's even like oaks that like white oak that I, I don't think of as particularly a, a fire lover. Sure. You know? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there were these persistent long leaves that are hanging out, uh, especially on ridge tops, Southwest facing slopes that maybe originated in the thirties and the forties. Wow. And, and then over time with, without fire, you know, these other species have moved in. So in areas like that, um, the, the approach or the management approach has been to it, it's heavy management to, to thin things out, to basically cut down everything that's not a long leaf, mm. um, and then prevent regrowth with herbicides, um, to try to, you know, stop the, the sprouting, uh, and then introduce fire, you know, after, mm. after the fact. Um, and so, some of the areas that the Department of Natural Resources started doing this in about 10 years ago, now you walk in there and you have no idea that there that was originally like a, a mixed species wow. closed canopy forest. It's, huh. you know, it's got the open canopy savanna feel. Um, there's grass everywhere. It's really, really amazing. That's um, cool. Yeah. So, so our kind of second area of inquiry was like looking at how uh, the fires were behaving in these stands that were on their way towards this uh, restoration endpoint. So starting with mixed species stands that have some longleaf in them and looking at, okay, well, is it 30% longleaf or is it 50% longleaf? And how do the fires behave in those yeah. different stands? So you might be like thinking to yourself, well, well you're all over the place. You're doing dendrochronology <laughs> and, and now you're doing like fire ecology. And I would say, yes, it's true. That, that's the nature of the beast, right? I mean, that's, that's, these are the kinds of questions that like, if you're interested in restoration, we need answers to in a bunch of different systems. I mean, you say you're building on the shoulders of others, but like you need to, because what's going on in Northwest Georgia might not be the same as what's going on in Talladega per se, or something to that effect. And I like that you're talking about sort of fire behavior in this context of mesification, because you're seeing it all over the place. You're seeing it out in the Midwest. You're seeing it in any fire adapted system where you've removed it. All of these non-fire adapted plants move in. That's going to change how fire moves through a system. It's like trying to start a bonfire with dry wood versus wet wood, right? And so even that, it seems like a no, like, oh, okay, I didn't know that was a thing, but yeah, what is the background of species composition doing? It's you kind of have to be all over. <laughs> yeah, um, and I I think part of it is also that um, like if you if you do it like a literature search on montane longleaf pine and compare your results to coastal longleaf pine or even sandhill longleaf pine, it <laughs> like the story is there, and this and the story the story is that like. No one, there's, there's just such little research on mountain longleaf. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it's sort of like, well, we can ask the important questions that are being asked in other systems, like oak pine systems, you know, uh, even kind of fire questions that are being asked with oak regeneration in the central hardwoods, ask those same kind of questions in a, in a mountain longleaf situation. Right. Totally. Um, and that's kind of what got us down this road is, uh, you know, some of my colleagues, uh, Heather Alexander at Auburn is a real fire ecologist in my mind. And, you know, she she was asking these these questions in systems with more hardwoods in them. But we started talking. And I was like, well, yeah, we've got to we've got to start thinking about this in the mountain longleaf stuff. 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, someone once said you do like a black belt does not get a black belt by inventing new moves. It's just combining moves in different ways that, you know, show some mastery of it. And that's exactly how you do this type of science. But when you say study fire behavior, that's curious to me uh, because I've done prairie burns at least. And that fire goes quick. Like, how do you have the time to go oh, and get close enough? Like it's hot. It's dangerous. How are you studying fire behavior to even start to compare across different backdrops of species composition? Yeah. So we actually were fortunate enough to work with uh, one of my colleagues at KSU, um, Mario Brefield, who is really good with uh, data loggers. And uh, we had uh, uh, we built our own thermocouple systems, which are uh, basically thermometers. Nice. Uh, and uh, and my graduate student Colin Anderson went out there early, early in the morning in, in the areas where burns were going to be set and set up these devices, which meant like digging holes in the ground, burying the loggers <laughs> in the ground, and then recording fire temperature. Uh, and, and because we had multiple loggers out there, we were actually able to estimate the rate of spread for the flame front. Nice. Um, and then, you know, other metrics, things like litter consumption that, that could be influential for, you know, the, the, the potential regeneration of not only longleaf, but also some of those mesophytic species. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's that like how hot, how fast all of that leaves you with a certain result at the end. And is that result good or bad? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in this case um, it, we ended up using the data uh, to, to create some, some models of fire behavior. And um, I'm just going to, I'll just leave it there because that's a, a manuscript that's sure, sure, uh, sure. in the works right now. Yeah. But uh, I'm hoping we'll, we'll get that out soon. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we can say more about that. But I mean, in terms of like the motivation, what comes out the other end is uh, going back to your applied approach to all of this is like, okay, if the system has X amount, like these are where you can start getting into recommendations of, okay, we know this, let's build off of this, or we know this works better in this scenario versus that scenario kind of thing, right? I mean, this is where the science meets the application. Yeah. So, you know, like earlier I was talking about um, how there are these sort of relict longleafs that you can you can thin out their mesified stands and you can, um, you know, spray them with herbicide and introduce prescribed fire. And, and bring back something like a longleaf system. Yeah. Uh, but but um, more often than not, there's, it, at least in, in Northwest Georgia, there's a lot of land that um, is former industry land, like mm. Loblolly pine plantations, and or there's there's private owners and, and nine times out of 10, they've got Loblolly pine. And so another big approach is like to just go in there, log that stuff, and then uh, reintroduce fire after after you've planted the, mm. the long leaf. Um, and so we've, we've also been working in, in sites like that. And so I'm hoping that like down the road, we'll kind of be able to have information about sort of both of those starting points. Like if you're start, if you happen to own property in Northwest Georgia and you happen to have long leaf, like how can you manipulate your property in a way that gets you back to that long leaf, you know, system and how might that be different if you're starting with lobelite pine and you don't sure. have any long leaf? Right. Uh, so yeah. So that's that's another thing I'm excited by is like um, it's it's all restoration ecology, but it's it's sort of different management starting in different places and and how how quickly do those things converge? Yeah, yeah. I love that sort of concept. And of course, you know, TBD, more work to be done. But 
at the same time, you kind of have to because so much of this is tied up in private property. And as people learn more and more about like the incentives and the benefits to restoring these ecosystems or at least getting these species back on the landscape in a functional sort of way where they can live and reproduce, I mean, that's, I'm guessing, going back to sort of the bigger ecosystem perspective, that's impacting what other plants grow there. How much of the canopy is open affects what's growing in the understory. And then all of that affects, you know, quail or deer or, you know, all of these things that like a lot of big landowners do think about. It's just, what's the angle? What's the hook that gets that person on board to say, okay, now here's your little recipe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a good point. And, and I think that like the prescribed burning that's going on through the Department of Natural Resources, especially is often driven by a wildlife interest or, um, you know, which, which, which dovetails with biological conservation in, in a lot of places, uh, while there's an interest in, you know, maintaining healthy populations of, of game birds like quail and, and deer, um, if we're also transforming the habitat to something that supports really unique species like, you know, red cockaded woodpeckers, mm. then let's, let's go there too. Um, and, and uh, in the sites where I'm working, we don't have those like charismatic species, like the red cockaded woodpeckers. There's certainly no gopher tortoises, <laughs> but, but we do have, um, we've got species like the Eastern pine snakes that are, you know, uh, I, I would say threatened, right. Or borderline. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's, there's certainly the potential for those, that broader ecosystem support in the future. You know, if, if we do things right, right. Like if, if the people that are working in restoration ecology really get it right, then we're expanding habitat for all those, those animals. Right. Yeah. And here I am talking about animals. And, right. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> rather than plants, <laughs> you got to realize too, like it's something like all of us working in plants get to at some point is like, until we rapidly change sort of the bigger public perspective you kind of have to find those umbrella species that whatever gets you on board you're listening let's run with it right and and i yeah. you just have to be practical i'm trying to preach the gospel of plants being cool just for the sake of them being what they are but we have to be realistic and I, i'd assume you know in the lands that you're working with the co sort of your collaborators the the stakeholders like their interests probably vary a lot and i would bet a lot of it is sort of biased towards, okay, what kind of mammals or animals can we get back on the landscape in some scenarios? Yeah. Yeah. I think there is that, but, um, I, I will say that like, I I've definitely been impressed by, uh, the department of natural resources in Georgia. Um, they, they certainly have an eye on the whole system, Good. um, which, yeah, which was really, uh, impactful to me. But so, so I, I guess I should mention like our, our latest, project that's just getting started up now is um, an effort to understand more about the plants in the understory communities, uh, especially in regard to pollinators. So um, I'm, I'm, again, collaborating with people uh, at, at other places, um, but we're, we're hoping to start to nail down what are like the available plants for pollinators and what plants are they actually using um, so my, my side of the equation is, is going to be looking at like, what's the understory plant community like in terms of pollinator plants and my collaborators at, um, Mississippi state are, are going to be, um, looking at like the DNA on the, on the bees that like the pollen DNA on the bees nice. uh, and trying to identify like the plants that they're, they're visiting. <sighs> 
Yeah. Man, I love so, that genetic work is getting cheap enough that that's a viable option for assessing what they're doing. Yeah. I, yeah. It's getting cheaper and cheaper. My understanding is that they need a lot of samples. So mm, it's, uh, it's still not to in total cheap, but like per sample, it's, yeah. yeah it's it's getting only getting better over time. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So we're working in, uh, we're starting off working in these stands that, that I've been describing to you. But the hope is to actually expand to look at the health of pollinator networks across this really broad stretch of land that uh, is, is sort of like a restoration corridor mm. that um, the state and also TNC are, are hoping to establish. It's called the dug down corridor. And uh, they're, they've been purchasing land uh, for like the last 10 years going from around Kennesaw, just west of Kennesaw in Georgia, all the way over to the Alabama border, um, meeting up with the Talladega National Forest. Excellent. And uh, there's there's quite a bit of land now that is, you know, in a conservation trusts or easements. Um, and I think in the long game, it all has the potential to um, be longleaf habitat. Yeah. And so we'd like to kind of get a head start on understanding, okay, if you're going to go in there and you're going to plant longleaf, that's great. And you're going to burn. That's great. Um, we know like from, from some other studies, it seems like the, the native species and the understory are coming back, but are they, are they the ones that are the most important for, yeah. for our pollinator networks? Are there species that we're missing? And, and then like, if so, you know, what can we do about that? And that's, that's a whole nother story right there because that's like the the story of native seed propagation, right? right. And, and native native seed planting. So we're trying to. It's like multilateral, right? We're yeah. trying to do many things at once, I guess. Which is great. I I mean, I would assume kind of going back to your beginning of trying to figure out what you wanted, just being excited about ecology, and then finding this world of restoration. It, it almost you strike me as someone that would be bored if it was just one thing, one thing all the time, never changing, never deviating. It almost feels like it really fits who you are as a person, as a researcher to have your hands in so many different sort of facets of looking at this topic and, and trying to tease apart what as, as much as you can really. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, <laughs> like going way back to when I worked in engineering, I think one of the reasons I got out of it was because uh, it was sort of like, all right, make a microchip now make it faster. Right. <laughs> right. Hone it, hone it, hone it. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. And no offense to engineers. No, no, we need those people. That's your thing. Great. Yeah. But yeah, um, I, I certainly like the variety of questions that you're able to ask in ecology. And, you know, focusing on plants and soils was my original kind of area of expertise, but I really enjoyed branching out into this system sure. um, and taking on graduate students who are just not afraid to ask new questions uh, and not afraid to, you know, step into a, uh, an area of focus that is a little bit outside the comfort zone. You know, <laughs> I, I feel like I've been really lucky in, in, in being able to convince collaborators to, to join our projects and, and turn them into something good yeah. and without those collaborators. You know, I, I don't think it would have happened. Uh, it's exciting stuff. And yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to find the people that are comfortable with the uncomfortable uh, because really it's like the edge of range stuff. That's where a lot of the interesting stuff is happening. You just got to figure out how to do it and get the right people in the room, which you know, in and of itself is a feat. It's a network of people concerned about an ecosystem type that is, like you said, one of the rarest of the rare and, and getting it back onto the landscape. I think that's one of the most exciting part because like, you know, Longleaf as a whole, we're not going to talk the debate here of, of varietals and stuff like that, but 
it's on the landscape. Like it's not going anywhere today, tomorrow, in the next decade, but bits and pieces of it are. And that's what's scary. And to kind of invest in something that isn't giving you like ESA level funding for it, that that takes a lot of effort and a lot of convincing, but there's people willing to do it. And so, you know, in your work, you've probably seen a variety of restoration attempts. Like, is there evidence, even though we don't maybe understand the nitty gritty of it yet, is it working? Can it be done well in a way that, you know, as we currently understand it, gets a functioning ecosystem back on the landscape. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the pollinator question is still TBD, but um, this, this, these types of restoration activities have been going on for, uh, at, at, I, would, I wanna say about 10 years. Mm. And um, I think there's some good work, especially from the DNR that, that shows that um, a lot of the native plants associated with these communities um, are coming back and even uh, the bird species that um, people would hope to find in the yeah. in the system are there too. Um, yeah, they're you know I'm good, I'm I'm revising what I said earlier uh, <laughs> about the good examples of old growth uh, in Georgia. There there are some small pieces of longleaf mountain longleaf at Berry College, uh, and mm. they've they uh, have been burning for quite a while. And um, they also, in my mind, are sort of like a reference, uh, a reference for, you know, maybe what we should be be aiming for. I, you know, I, I'm not one of those people that that thinks that like the historical system is the gold standard. Sure. I, you know, I think times have changed and ecosystems change. Yeah. Um, and I think it's more like, a well, you've got it moving in the right direction anyway. Right. 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 But, yeah. Yeah, and and I don't know a single restoration ecologist or ecologist in general that even entertains this idea of like this pristine pre-colonial sort of like that is such an old mindset that is largely gone to the wayside. But it is we need something than housing developments and strip malls and blacktop and you know lawn like lawn. Oh my god, anything is better than that. And so you know, with this idea that it may not be what it once was, but it is better than nothing. It, it, it's it's our modus operandi, especially like you know, moving into this future with population rising, climate change, all of that stuff that can change it. But you know, you make a good point too. Like you're working often in in landscapes where like the the land itself, like the physical land, has been altered. There's always going to be a legacy of that. Yeah, yeah, and and I should say that like these systems are uh, as the crow flies, like uh, 30, 40 miles from Atlanta. So, Ooh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So like if you look on, um, take the satellite view of, of um, you know, Google Maps around uh, Atlanta and you can zoom out and you'll see this like big green patch to the northwest of Atlanta. And it's it's surrounded by development. But that's that's where this is happening. That's where yeah. this corridor is is starting to get established. So that's really encouraging in my mind. Totally. Yeah. And going back to what you said at the beginning, this is the anti-bummer, right? This is people coming together to put something back out there to encourage, you know, the plants and then all of the species that rely on them. And that's something I think we all need to celebrate, but most importantly, study to try to understand better because we can just refine it over time and then pick up where someone, you know, maybe this is applicable to someone working with like jack pine up north. You know, we can learn things in different systems and apply them in different ways. And the better we get with the science, the better off everyone and the outcomes can be for us in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a very uh, rewarding system to work in so far. And, and uh, I'm, I'm really kind of excited about where 
it's going to go as this corridor expands and as there's there's more of the the mountain longleaf habitat um you know people are are saying like down the road you know could this support things like the red cockaded woodpeckers and i think as the trees get bigger sure it probably could yeah. you know it's an important ingredient of time <laughs> yeah exactly right on well uh, in that case, I think we're going to have to have you keep in touch because I could see a lot more conversations happening as more and more data come pouring in and get analyzed and papers get published. But in the meantime, if people want to kind of keep a finger on the pulse of what you're doing, what your collaborators are doing, where do you recommend they go looking to find out more? Ooh, so I, I am really uh, like below the radar in terms of being on uh, the internet. It, um, I'm envious. You can find me, I guess, through <laughs> Kennesaw State. I do have a little bit of a web presence. I think I have a page, but I've been really bad about that. So, um, well, I found your of, work. So <laughs> you're not unsearchable. <laughs> yeah, I'm not unsearchable, just barely. Uh, so yeah, it's one of my goals is to to expand my web presence. But for now, if, if anybody wants to find me, I guess probably the best way is just to find my faculty page at Kennesaw State. Excellent. Contact me from there. I will put up links so everyone can uh, save themselves the trouble of trying to remember that. But uh, Dr. Wind, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us about this and doing it so eloquently and, and you know, giving us something to not be bummed about for a change. It's such a relief in this in this work, in this field. So, uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here. Cheers. All right. Phenomenal stuff. I thank Dr. Wien for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And if you ever get a chance to see some mountain longleaf forests, go do it. They're incredible. They look so different. The trees look gnarled and bonsai. It's just so cool. And you're going to see a lot of cool plants and animals in the process. I promise you that. As always, go check the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com where I post all of the links relevant to this discussion as well as every discussion we have on this show. While you're over there, look at all the great ways to support the show because I can't do it without support. You can buy a copy of my book. You can pick up some of our customizable merch or some stickers. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.